Coming up on Tech Nation, Netflix. How did it get here? Why has its stock crashed? And where is it going? Don't worry, Bridgerton fans. There'll be more seasons. Journalist Dade Hayes and Dawn Chevaleski join me with Binge Times, Inside Hollywood's furious billion-dollar battle to take down Netflix. Then on Biotech, Dr. Maria Magicchini, the founder, president, and CEO of Innovus Bio. She tells us how sticky proteins lead to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, and more. Those sticky proteins? They need to go. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with New York Times journalist Mark Elite Fox about her book, The Riddle of the Labyrinth, The Quest to Crack an Ancient Code. Let me set the scene. It was a beautiful spring day in 1900, a beautiful spring day, much like this one today. And on that day, at Knossos in the wild countryside of northern Crete near Heraklion, the great English archaeologist Sir Arthur Evans embarked on a dig, a dig that was to last him the rest of his life. And what he unearthed there was one of the greatest archaeological finds of all time, a vast, sprawling, Bronze Age Palace, bigger than Buckingham Palace. It spanned some six acres, filled with the ruins of what had once been grand staircases, ornate murals in brilliant colors, uh, a sophisticated hydraulic system that included Bronze Age indoor plumbing, bubbling fountains, and much, much more. But what Arthur Evans found, which is what he had gone to Crete to look for, through all of these treasures into the shade. He found writing. He found cache after cache of clay tablets inscribed in wet clay by palace scribes in about 1400 BC, the height of the Bronze Age, that were the archival records of this previously unknown European civilization. The tablets were inscribed in a beautiful, bewildering, curious script that was like no writing ever seen. It was filled with little hieroglyphics uh, that looked like pots and pans, men and women, uh, horses' heads, swords, chariots, deers' heads, uh, you name it, and symbols that looked like nothing in this world. Evans named the script Linear B, and as my book, The Riddle of the Labyrinth, describes, Linear B would become one of the most tantalizing and also one of the most formidable intellectual puzzles in the history of mankind. Because not only did no one know what these Linear B tablets said, no one even knew what language they were written in. It could have been any one of a number of things back in the Aegean Bronze Age. And so they had a decipherer's most challenging situation. 
an unknown language written in an unknown script. It is the linguistic equivalent of a locked room mystery in a detective novel. Now, let's just start with the tablets, though. You were saying they were written on wet clay. It was actually some happenstance of apparent great destruction that actually led to the tablet's preservation. That's right, and as Sir Arthur Evans memorably wrote, he wrote, uh, fire elsewhere so fatal to historic libraries has here been a preservative of these remarkable records. What happened was this. Most of these clay tablets had been preserved because in about 1400 B.C., in some catastrophe that we will never fully understand, the palace burned down. Any tablet that wound up being pretty close to the fire, you have an instant kiln. And so you had, in the end, nearly 2,000 tablets that were baked, fired, if you will, to a permanent hardness because of this otherwise catastrophic blaze. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features New York Times journalist Margulit Fox about the riddle of the labyrinth, the quest to crack an ancient code. After a 24-year career, she's now left the Times, but fortunately for us, she's not left writing. Her latest book is just out, The Confidence Men, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, journalists Dade Hayes and Dawn Chmielewski talk about the wild ride of Netflix. Their stock has dropped, and their subscribers too, while Bridgerton is more popular than ever. Then, neurotoxins, sticky proteins, all leading to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, and more. I speak with Dr. Maria Machikini, the founder, president, and CEO of Novus Bio. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dade Hayes and Dawn Shimaleski. Well, Dade and Dawn, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Now, last October, Netflix stock traded at almost $700 a share. At the new year, it had dropped nearly $300 to $425. It dropped again to $350. And a few days ago, as of this interview, it dropped again to $225, two-thirds of its value in the last six months. What happened? Many things. Uh, I'll start and Don can kind of fill in the rest. But I think there has been a pullback in people's enthusiasm about streaming generally. That's a macro factor. Then the Netflix specific factor is people are just worried about competition. And even this week, it was remarkable. Uh, we'll probably get into many aspects of this week's uh, news that were stunning. But one of them was a much more candid acknowledgement by Netflix of the array of competition that's out there. 
Disney, Apple, HBO Max, on and on, a big list. That's really what our book is about, is like this whole boom. Netflix used to basically control the market along with Amazon, and there was Hulu. But that was, you know, 10 plus years where they had kind of the field to themselves. Now they're really facing tough competition. So those are kind of a couple of the reasons. Although not from CNN. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> CNN plus. Yeah. CNN, CNN minus. I CNN minus. Which has gone in a quibby, even faster than quibby. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> well, you you name any number of people out in this streaming space, and uh, Quibi is one of the ones you, you talk about. Uh, that's Q-U-I-B-I, that I have to spell it for people as an indicator. And you only have two names listed there. One is Jeffrey Katzenberg, and the other is CEO Meg Whitman, late of eBay. How could that fail? They had all the money in the world. They did. They raised a staggering uh, $1.75 billion to launch a startup, which you're, you're located right in the heart of Silicon Valley. This is uh, not what uh, the folks over at Stanford refer to as the minimally viable product that they launched. They uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg's philosophy was that there was a huge opportunity and the way to be noticed in a very crowded and increasingly crowded space is to go out strong. And so his foundational premise was, let me sign all of the big names in Hollywood who will make uh, projects for the smallest device that you own, your phone. He recognized correctly that uh, video consumption was growing on devices. What he misread about the market is that the video that most consumers are watching on their phones is not long-form content, movies and TV shows necessarily, but rather um, these user-generated videos that are um, that are more like a, a meme and an ongoing conversation between the users than they are resembling scripted fare. And so uh, when Quibi launched, it it uh, almost it was immediately pilloried um, by users as not offering. It, it felt sort of out of touch with the market and uh, quickly took a nosedive. There's a catalog of issues, yeah, with Quibi. I would just tag on a couple, which is that they had no living room app. There was no way to watch any of the content, even though you're talking about an A-list roster of creators that had signed on to make these cinematic Netflix-esque works, but there was no way you could watch it at home. And the whole premise was on the go, you know, when you're commuting right. and you're online at the bank, et cetera. So it was a giant miscalculation. Well, and, and, and of course, it launched in the middle of COVID and during a time in the early days of COVID when we were all locked in our homes. So while uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg correctly know, recognized that consumers were looking for some form of entertainment to sort of distract them from the gloom, this inability to watch this high quality cinematic content on the biggest screen in the home really was a, a problem. It was an inhibiting factor as well. You'd be better launching it today when you're not home. <laughs> they sent you away. They send you away. Now, Netflix is the central character in your book, and we forget that Netflix has been around for 25 years. So let's take a minute, remember how it started, how it got here, and what it has generally been known to the consumer today, at least up into the last 10 minutes. There's always breaking news. Um, it's just become basically another channel on your TV. So in the beginning, um, Netflix was the brainchild of um two executives, Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph, who were winding down their last tech venture and sort of commuting together as the wind down took place and brainstorming ideas. And they were looking for a way to draft off kind of the early success of Amazon. And they landed on this notion of 
DVDs and the ability for people to go to their computer and order an ob- something that could come to their home uh, in minutes. And, and, and so around 1997, there was the advent of the, the DVD. It seems like a million years ago now. Um, and they, they, they tested uh, shipping a little CD via the mail, and it managed to survive you know, its journey through the post office uh, and concluded that there was a way to efficiently begin um, offering consumers either DVDs for sale or you know, as, a, as a rental. And uh, it quickly it began to evolve its model. It went, uh, you know, it evolved into a flat rate um, rental where, where consumers could have three DVDs all at once for, for a fixed fee and explain this proposition to consumers as a way to save on those usurious late fees that Blockbuster was charging at the time. And for, for people who don't remember, Blockbuster had all these VHS tapes and had all these these DVDs. And it was like you're standing in line, and do they have what you want? And, oh, now you're paying yeah, ninety six dollars. Head to the back wall for the new releases. And yeah, there was nothing that you were looking for, so you ended up with you know exactly. And you could keep those three CDs because you didn't get around to them, or DVDs because you didn't get around to them, and you're just paying your monthly fee. So it's all on your time. So we didn't know it at the time, but it was kind of everything's on your time like it is today. So sometimes you do get a little lucky. I'm not sure they recognize that. So where did we go from there? So, so another, uh, another technological um, milestone uh, is represented by YouTube and the advent of on-demand streaming began to capture, you know, the imagination of the consumer. And, and Reed Hastings uh, recognized that was a signal for the consumers that, that they were willing to, uh, to sit at their computers and watch video. And it led to the service that we would recognize today, sort of this on-demand streaming offering. Back in the day, this was other people's content, but Netflix got into the content business itself. I'll let Dade take the next chapter. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's amazing, too, is that um, we spoke with um, Neil Hunt, who is a longtime, really foundational member of the management team at Netflix. And he mentioned that, you know, Reed always told him that, you know, he named the company Netflix uh, for a reason. He knew it was all headed to the Internet. Um, so the DVD business was really just kind of the opening act and a way for them, frankly, to amass an incredible trove of data. And to your point. Moira, like to kind of seed this idea of on demand and people's convenience and, you know, what they wanted. To, and, and remember, we all had a queue. And in a way, we're still in that world of like, you have a playlist or you have a list of favorites, you know, on your Netflix. But, you know, they always were driving hard toward streaming. They got there in 2007. Um, and we spoke with the current head of product, Greg Peters, about this kind of skunk works team, you know, these, uh, I don't know, six or eight engineers who were, you know, they could fit into a small conference room and they were the ones working on the jump into streaming. And um, I mean, just to wrap it up, I would say what they really, the foundation that they laid for the industry was they just kind of defined what streaming was. I know Amazon was there, Hulu was there, but Hulu was really on your laptop. It had commercials, you know, it didn't feel the same. Netflix is the only one that became a verb, you know, Netflix and chill. Like they were the only one who kind of define what that action and that experience was of streaming. So that was a very important, and I think that's actually good to highlight as we head through this current period. It's certainly a rough patch (laughs) to say the least for Netflix, but I think they did kind of establish something at the beginning that 
could see them through. I mean, we'll see. For me, there's there's the question of now that we do have competition, it's like, well, how much do I want to spend as an individual on multiple streaming services? That's right. Uh, yeah, no, I think they, in a way, they're still the leader of the field, even though they lost subscriptions, which is kind of a shocker. That, that hadn't happened, you know, for almost 11 years. So the idea that they would be losing ground, that's what set the alarm bells off, among other things. Well, of course, um, but, sat- but, it may be saturated. <laughs> we, we only right, have the, so the, many people that go, go home during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, they love to talk about TAM, right? Total available market. And the TAM, I think, is is smaller than they said and what everybody had said. So that's going to be interesting to watch is like, and, and you've seen the, the sort of, uh, you know, radiating effect on other stocks and other businesses. So, you know, as people contemplate Disney Plus, their uh, target is 230 to 260 million subscribers in about a year and a half's time. Can they get there? I, you know, I'm, you know, I think everybody's a little skeptical, just given what we've seen now from Netflix. Count the grandparents. Count the grandparents. That's, that's it. <laughs> right. you're, you're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are journalists Dade Hayes and Dawn Shmoleski. Dade Hayes has been covering the entertainment business at Deadline, Variety, and Entertainment Weekly, and you may have read his work in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. Dawn Shmoleski is a Los Angeles-based U.S. entertainment business correspondent for Reuters. You may know her from her previous positions at Recode, Forbes, and the Los Angeles Times. They're here today with Binge Times, inside Hollywood's furious billion-dollar battle to take down Netflix. You know, not so long ago, Hollywood produced all the films, television channels, and a few independents, usually based in Hollywood, produced all the television programming. Netflix was mailing out DVDs. Amazon was selling books. Everybody wants to be everything. What's up with that? You know, it, we've we've reached an interesting um, moment in time where um, the media world, like like so many other sectors of the economy, goes through these sort of binge purge cycles where uh, companies combine under the auspices of synergies. You'll remember the dreaded AOL Time Warner uh, merger from a couple of generations ago, only to be peeled apart. We have a more recent example in the uh, formation of uh, an AT&T's acquisition of uh, Time Warner lauding. So again, the potential of video on mobile phones, I believe that is the uh, the Achilles heel of all of the failed ventures here, is this notion. <laughs> um, you know, and the, the premise there was that um, by uh, owning content and controlling content, AT&T could prevent churn from its very valuable uh, telephone service, uh, its, its cellular service, uh, by offering an enticements such as the ability to get HBO as part of uh, one's uh, monthly uh phone bill. That premise just what what AT&T learned fairly quickly after spending billions of dollars was that capitalizing on this next trend, capitalizing on the uh, arrival of on-demand video and the growth of streaming would require billions of dollars in investment. Well, 
That was not something that AT&T was willing to do, even as it was spending billions of dollars to build out 5G networks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, the, the money tree was not growing in Dallas. So, the, so uh, AT&T it just simply decided to shed that asset, merge it with Discovery and let it continue on a path as a sort of pure play media company, one that was not linked with distribution. The diversification thing is very interesting, too, as Don was alluding to. Um, there is this kind of wanderlust or this kind of roving eye where you know, a telecom company doesn't want to just be in its little box and be a telecom company. And if you look across the landscape, you have Disney with this unmatched asset with the theme parks. What would Disney be without parks? They would be a very different company. Comcast similarly has prospered because of broadband and because of cable TV, even though cable TV conventionally defined is kind of declining. Um, So it's, it's interesting on that diversification front. Don just mentioned Warner Discovery, it is a pure play. They're deeply invested in only entertainment. They have a few other side ventures, maybe digital assets, you know, international ventures, but they're not very diversified at this moment. And, you know, Netflix, the original streaming leader, also kind of desperate to diversify. They're going into games. They're dipping a toe into, you know, licensed merchandise. They're, they would actually love to be uh, Disney at one point. They're deeply uh, invested now in family animation. They're making lots of animated films. So it's just really fascinating to see, you know, the grass is greener, right? Everybody kind of wants to be some form of what the other is, and maybe they're all just a little bit insecure. Yeah, they keep looking to the right and left, but, you know, (laughs) do we have one of those? Let's buy one. Let's make one and buy one and sell it and whatever, ignore it, whatever (laughs) it is. Uh, You open the book at Radio City Music Hall in New York City, waiting for a preview in this unseen British accented voice says, welcome to the beginning of the end. And it's the world premiere of the final season of the Game of Thrones, you know, a television show, but no, you're in the hundred foot screen. There it is. And of course, here in the press, we get invited to these things. and It's really fun. (laughs) We like it. So I have two questions. First of all, did the Rockettes come out and dance before the movie? Because they always do at Radio City. I went there as a kid. Yeah, no, no Rockettes, right? No Rockettes. Nah, the Venn diagram on Rockettes and Game of Thrones. The circles don't come together. Okay. But here's really my real question. Game of Thrones was HBO, you know, and I'm thinking of Bill Maher was, has been big for HBO. You also say there are 271 streaming services, subscription streaming services at last count. Do you think you need a big hit of your own, just one show, and then that will make it for you? You can make a deal with somebody? Is that how it works? I think that is the article of faith, and I think there's evidence to to support that. Um, Everybody needs a calling card. Everybody needs something. I mean, one of our subjects in, in Binge Times is Peacock. And they were terribly hamstrung at the beginning when they launched in April of 2020, not only because of the pandemic and the difficulties in marketing, and they didn't have the Olympic Games to kind of use as, you know, an extra jumpstart, but they had no real compelling original shows. They really didn't have anything to offer where it's like, oh, boy, I better drop everything and subscribe to Peacock. Now, the (laughs) picture has gotten a bit better. They have Bel Air. They have you know, wrestling, they have, you know, Premier League soccer, they have a few things that are exclusive and big draws. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what's amazing to look at in terms of that population, I think the number is even higher than 271. Honestly, I think it's inched up around 300. But the churn, which is how many people cancel, 
on average is about 37%. Mm. So think about that. Everybody's kind of hopping on and hopping off and it's easier to do than ever. We don't have to call the cable guy and wait for a four hour window and get all the boxes unplugged or any of that. It's just literally on, off, on, off. And so, but I think you do need some original calling card. You do. Interesting. Very interesting. They want more than just stranger things. <laughs> here's when the season drops and that's why we exist. They want to be kind of a more multidimensional offering that can bring you in, not cyclically, not every so often, but daily or, you know, hourly if they could. Well, you know, let's get to Hollywood. And I say that <laughs> because I remember, and this is not a few years ago, this is maybe 10 years ago, eight, 10 years ago, more. there was one Oscar ceremony where I swear every other presenter and whoever, would get up and say, you really got to see these movies in movie theaters, you know? And they're like, no, now Netflix is winning Oscars. You know, it's like, what? How could that be? And, uh, we, the three of us should get together. We'll win an Oscar. You know, and it's like, this is in disarray. How was Hollywood really focused on Netflix? You know, you sort of, you sense that from your subtitle. It was, they're throwing billions of dollars. Were they looking at Netflix to try to take it down? Or they just wanted its market, just wanted to eat it up. So I think that um, Hollywood's thinking has evolved. In the in the earliest days, when Netflix launched its streaming service, it went to all of the studios in search of content. Now it had cultivated relationships with the studios for the, in the DVD world, and so so it did have entree to the studios. And, and Netflix began overpaying to get access to the top movie titles, to get access to uh, the television series. And Hollywood looked at Netflix as the biggest sucker. Uh, it was another buyer and it was a deep pocketed buyer and Hollywood was happy to take the money. And that continued for years. Um, that continued for a decade until Hollywood realized, hey, wait a minute, Netflix has changed consumer behavior. And companies like Disney, which has all of these valuable brands, as you know, Pixar and, and LucasArts, uh, which is the, you know, the creator of Star Wars, and Marvel, they had all these very valuable entertainment brands, but it suddenly recognized that cash cow ESPN was starting to lose subscribers, which was a, a horrifying uh, moment. And it recognized that it had in effect, created its own worst enemy and began to, in, 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 uh, in 2017, announced that it would claw back its movies and TV shows in service of its own streaming service. But for years, you know, it uh, was happy to take Netflix's money, which enhanced its bottom line, which not coincidentally also enhanced the bonuses that executives received. So Netflix did play this town for quite some time. Is Netflix too big to buy? Boy, we're, uh, Don and I are both uh, chasing after that one. Are they too big? Perhaps not at the current valuation. They're not. But I would actually turn it around. There's a lot of, I think, free radicals, as John Malone, the billionaire you know, investor and media mogul, likes to call them. Um, maybe it's another moment where a tech company decides to land grab I mean, there's, there are distressed assets I could probably list off uh, that might really help Netflix. So I don't know. I, Don, I'd be curious. I don't necessarily see Netflix as a target as much as in need of some new configuration, and maybe they're the buyer. I think perhaps, uh, look, uh, there are certainly um, 
media companies that would uh, love to be acquired at the right price. Uh, everything, as you know, is for sale at the right price. And, and there has been a great deal of consolidation already in the media world, as Dade mentioned. Uh, Disney acquired Fox, a transaction none of us would have envisioned before, um, you know, so uh, and 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 on and on, sort of the the uh, Warner Media consolidation uh, combination with Discovery again, another deal that we could hardly have imagined. So there there probably are other deals in the works. We know that there their assets currently being shopped, um, but I think right now Netflix is in a period of reexamination. I've been speaking with Dade Hayes and Dawn Chimileski, the authors of Binge Times. Inside Hollywood's furious billion-dollar battle to take down Netflix. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Dr. Maria Macicchini tells us about sticky proteins and how they lead to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other neurodegenerative disorders. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with journalists Dade Hayes and Dawn Chimileski, the authors of Binge Times, Inside Hollywood's Furious Billion-Dollar Battle to Take Down Netflix. There probably are other deals in the works. We know that there are their assets currently being shopped. Um, but I think right now Netflix is in a period of reexamination. Um, it is looking it, it for um, several for a couple of quarters, it, 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 it thought that its slowing growth had been the byproduct of a, a, a few uh, sort of anomalies that that COVID had accelerated the number of people who would who subscribe to this service. So, so in, in the, the language of Wall Street, it pulled forward demand so that um, that uh, as people resume their daily lives, sort of the, the growth of subscribers had slowed. Well, that theory held for a little while, but it became clear that it didn't explain what was happening in 2022. Um, so now, uh, now Netflix has to examine um, what is 
underlying its slowing growth. Um, is it, as Dade, Dade mentioned, the fact that this total universe of, of potential customers, which you know, Netflix might envision as a billion around the globe, perhaps is smaller. Other analysts say it's probably closer to 400 million than a billion. Um, still sizable, but not perhaps as large as Envision. Perhaps it's um, the product. Perhaps it's uh, Netflix's original series. You know, Netflix is going through this period of examination, trying to cut costs and trying to determine what what is causing uh, this sort of slowing growth. So, you know, it's Reed Hastings is one of the most analytical people I've ever met, um, and he has he has he has helped Netflix pull itself out of similar scrapes. You re, your listeners may recall the Quickster debacle, where um, oh, Reed announced <laughs> announced that he would uh, separate the DVD business, which had long been its its bread and butter, from this nascent streaming business, and if one wanted to have both. Uh, you could increase, you could pay more money to Netflix and Netflix's, Netflix's stock w just went into a free fall. Um, and, and Reed Hastings admitted I was wrong, uh, did a mea culpa that became satirized on Saturday Night Live. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and the company found, a, found its way forward. It's, it's a much larger company now. The competitive landscape is much different. So we'll see where Netflix goes from here. And Reed Hastings is 25 years older. <laughs> Still a smart man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hasn't hasn't lost his game. I'd bet on him. Don't know what he's doing, but I'd bet on him. Just he's gonna come up with something, you know. It's, he's not only analytic, he also has like ah, hunches. <laughs> so yeah. that that's a dangerous combination. Dangerous combination. So what would you say is you I mean we're we're right now, it seems like at a uh, would you call it a nexus, or it's, or it's like the 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 roller coaster has been going up, 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 and it's just over the top, and now we're starting to fall. It's like, what are we going to see? I mean, I'm asking you to be a little psychic, but um, it's like it looks like some things are coming apart at the seams here in terms of all these streaming and streaming services and content creation, content acquisition. What do you th what do you think, Dad? Yeah, I mean, I think we posit in the book and we continue to believe that um, the fragmentation and just the kind of overwhelming array of options for consumers is a hindrance to the overall growth of streaming. And now that everybody's gotten the message that, whoa, maybe the market isn't as big as we thought, maybe there's not just endless green, you know, green pasture out there for us to explore, maybe we need to like actually improve our profit potential. And I think one way they can do that is to, you know, streamline what exists in the marketplace for consumers. You know, we talked to an emerging company called Stroom that does bundling of niche streaming. So you pay basically pay one price and then you get access to a bundle. You pay a flat rate. And then if you want a show over here, a show over there, two shows over there, those all are eligible under your plan. It's an interesting novel way to solve the friction of, of discovering content that you like. Um, so some version of that, I mean, we're seeing HBO max is going to merge with discovery plus that will take, you know, a couple, uh, that will take one of the, I don't know, top 10 players in the U S off the board in discovery plus. So I think more of that is likely and not at all unhealthy. You know, if you saw Hulu kind of blended with Disney plus, you know, I, I think these are not, unwelcome changes from the consumer end. I mean, we kept 
kind of running into this again and again and experiencing it ourselves over the course of the three years that we worked on this is like, man, it is, is it hard to find and access what we want to watch? It just remains very difficult. And we all don't want to go back to the channel flipping and be there Tuesday at 9.30 for X show. But there's got to be, I mean, Netflix was a, a, you know, a step change in the right direction you know, way back when, but I think we're ready for another step forward. Um, so, you know, those are some, some cautious predictions yeah. about what we might see. You two picked a, an interesting three years to look at. <laughs> I, think, I think there's going to be a binge times too. I'm sorry. I, I see that coming. It might only be a year or a year and a half, but it's it's coming as well. Oh, yeah. If you read the hardcover, be sure not to miss the paperback in, <laughs> yeah, in a year really. or two, right? <laughs> really, it's going to be there. And um, I mean, we were laughing last night because I was saying that I was, I, they said, had the interview going, like, oh, we're not, the listeners don't need to know, but we did a real, some quick rescheduling scheduling with breaking news, you know, and, uh, and a friend of mine said, well, I want to know, is it, 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 uh, it, what's the impact of this Bridgerton season two without that good looking guy? And I'm like, I'll ask them, are the numbers in yet? Is it bringing any company down? <laughs> well, well, that's, what's kind of crazy is that Bridgerton season two was ended up being one of their most watched shows of, of all time. I believe it's the most watched English language season of a series in Netflix history, which is remarkable. So it improved on the first season. Um, and that's what was so disorienting about Tuesday's, um, or, or, you know, the previous week's earnings, uh, announcement and the whole meltdown of Netflix is that just at the moment, they're releasing some very encouraging numbers. They had great movie results with, you know, red notice with, um, uh, don't look now with, you know, a bunch of their, their movies seem to be clicking and then, you know, series like, um, like Bridgerton are working and then on the, on the heels of squid game last fall. So like they have good news to report and yet the overall business, it was like, at the same time, they're releasing these stats. They're, they're being very pointed and very kind of candid in a way that they've never been before about, I think Reed's phrase, Don, you can fact check me, but I think he said something like, we need to take it up a few notches in terms of quality. I mean, that's just mind blowing. And just Ow. one thing to <laughs> that maybe some of the listeners have uh, been aware of before, but it's a funny, like quirky inside thing that, you know, that Don and I experience every quarter is they do these earnings interviews and there's this, been this convention at the end of the interview. It's a bit of a sort of kitschy in-house promo where the the moderator asks them, what are you looking forward to most on Netflix, you know, in the coming quarter? It's just like a soft landing for this, you know, conversation. And that was not, <laughs> that was not, you know, no part question? of, that was no that question. they ditched that part for this, this quarter, you know? Oh yeah. The, yeah. The only bright spot on the, the, um, earnings call in which um, Dade and I witnessed the most dour-looking executives we've ever seen on a uh, on a Netflix earnings call was uh, when Reed Hastings sort of perked up and talked about the potential of gaming, which he he was enthusiastic about. That segment of the business that is not material. <laughs> so, so right there you go. Yeah. Perhaps he's seeing around corners yet again. Yet again, follow him around. That's a good thing. Uh, it, this is this has just been terrific. I hope you guys come and see me again. You're welcome anytime. You don't have to write a book to get here. So thank you. <laughs> Would love to be back. Thank you. Thank you, Maura. Appreciate it. 
My guests today are journalists Dade Hayes and Dong Shimaleski. The book is Binge Times, Inside Hollywood's Furious Billion-Dollar Battle to Take Down Netflix. It's published by William Morrow. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. When we talk about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS, among others, they're often grouped as neurodegenerative disorders. While they each present a different profile of symptoms, what exactly do they have in common? Dr. Maria Machikini is the founder, president, and CEO of Inovus Bio. Maria, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Now, I want to start out by asking about how our brains react to toxins, so-called neurotoxins. And we actually already know a number of them. There's curare, the uh, plant extract used by the indigenous peoples of Central and South America. They put that on the tips of their arrows. There's arsenic, there's lead, there's tetanus, the list goes on. There are many varieties of these neurotoxins. And what I want to start with is to ask you, what happens in the brain when neurotoxins are present? Well, they do totally disrupt the functioning of the brain, and they actually make nerve cells die. Now, how that exactly happens, interestingly enough, happens through internal neurotoxins. Our body or our brain has developed sticky proteins that, when attacked, are released and go and, and stick around the toxin that came in or the virus or the, or the bacterium and try to kill it. And so actually you insert the neurotoxin into the brain and the nerve cells get injured and they get scared and they release the internal fighters that then stick around the neurotoxin and try to get it out of the way. So there's a lot going on in our brain once a neurotoxin gets there. That's for sure. Yes. Now, what I talked about were external sources of neurotoxins, and you said that there are also these internal neurotoxins that are actually naturally produced by our body and, and, and working on our behalf. So if everything's working great, it, it's a nice balance. Absolutely. If everything is working great, something comes into the brain that the brain doesn't like. It produces the internal toxins, and they do glob up around the intruder and get rid of it. But if there is a lot of damage, then a lot of these aggregating proteins are released. So these sticky proteins are released and there are way too many of them and they end up sticking together and making it toxic, interestingly enough, toxic aggregates and then plaque or tangles. And so the system that is supposed to protect our brain from intruders can actually work against us because it overproduces the soldiers, if you want to call it that way, that fight the intruders. I find this fascinating because anything named toxin sounds bad, but in yes. fact, they're, they're soldiers, as you say, that, that are on your side defending you. And if I get this straight, uh, they've come out in big numbers to fight this, but in some cases, there, there are too many of them. They stick together and they are sticky in the sense that they, they don't leave our system. What happens when we get this buildup of sticky proteins? Yeah, that's unfortunately what happens in neurodegeneration. So we have these sticky proteins and the first thing they do, they impair how nerve cells function. 
the nerve cell needs to communicate with itself, with other nerve cells, and these sticky proteins impair how it functions and the communication slows. And then that causes inflammation and eventually they cause the nerve cell that in the meantime is sick, they cause it to die. So what started out as a defense mechanism of our body turns into a killing mechanism for our body. Can you name some of these diseases? Because many of these neurodegenerative diseases, you know, they're different, you know, so are only some of them created or, or what? Interestingly enough, they all created similarly, but not identically. So in Alzheimer's, we have heard now for a long time that there is plaque. That's the buildup of sticky proteins, of one type of sticky protein. There's tangles. There is a buildup of a different sticky protein. And then as we have been looking better and better, we have found that there is also Lewy bodies, which is actually usually found in Parkinson's. And finally, we are finding a buildup of TDP43 that originally was found in ALS. So now in Alzheimer's, we have four sticky proteins that kill nerve cells. And interestingly enough, if you change the ratios, you see the exact same four sticky proteins in Parkinson's, except there you have foremost Lewy bodies, which is alpha-synuclein, you have tau, which is tangles, A-beta, and then TDP43. And if you look at Huntington's, originally it was thought that there is only one protein that's responsible for Huntington's, which is the sticky Huntington protein. Turns out there is a beta and there is tau, and there may be TDP43. So these sticky proteins show up in all, if not, yeah, I would say all neurodegenerative diseases. So you've got four, depending on the ratio between them, you've got a different disease. Uh, They are actually, I think, to date eight. Oh, great. It got harder. It got harder. Okay, there are eight. There may be a ninth. Remember, <laughs> they are, and we are getting better and better of detecting these things. So we find proteins that are there in much smaller amounts. Plaque was easy to see. If you open a brain of an Alzheimer person, you just see these big blobs. That's easy to see, but that you can't see TDP43 by eye. Now, Anovis Bio, what are you working on here? We're actually working at making all these sticky proteins not stick and not become toxic. The way we do that is that when an invader comes into the cell and the cell wants to react, we let it react, but not overreact. So we are not producing too many soldiers. And so that there is no crowding and they don't stick together. And that we have seen now that our drug inhibits too many proteins from becoming out and sticking in Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's disease and in animal models, we have seen it in a number of other diseases. So let's go to your clinical trials. You have a number of them um, and you're completing phase two studies and the great clinical trial trifecta is uh, I like to describe it before it gets approved. So you're completing phase two. This is significantly uh, uh, far along the way. Two are in Alzheimer's, one is in Parkinson's. Let's start with the Alzheimer's study. What are you targeting? How are you measuring results? So, you know, everybody has been talking about biomarkers, biomarkers, which actually are the measuring of the sticky proteins. But realistically, does a person really care if they have sticky proteins in their brain? They care if they remember. 
They care if they know their grandchildren. They care if they know how to go shop by themselves. So the first thing we measure is efficacy. We want to see that in Alzheimer patients, our patients have better memory, better function. They, they can function better. They have better mobility. They just do better. And in Alzheimer's, in fact, we did measure cognition, memory and learning, um, activities of daily living, and the patients do better. Now, you said we have two Alzheimer's studies. That is correct. They are both really small. So we have one with five patients and one with 14 patients. That gives us a grand total of 19 patients. That is a very small number to be 100% sure that the drug works. So as you said, there is a two and a three. We are planning in the next month or so to ask the FDA how to continue with Alzheimer's, given that we really don't have many patients, but given that the data in these few patients is really good. And we will suggest to the FDA that we do one short and one long study, and maybe a second long, longer study, and that's Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's, we probably have another three years to go before we have a drug. Now, you also have uh, a Parkinson's study, What's that about? Well, in Parkinson's, we treated more patients. We treated 54 patients. And the data looks just as good as in Alzheimer's. Our Parkinson's patients move better, be that with their hands, with their feet. They feel better. They, uh, they sleep better. So with 54 patients, we asked the FDA to go into phase three and do two phase three studies. And they said yes. So our first phase three study is starting ideally May 31st, let's say for second quarter of this year, but it's starting, it's starting in a few months. And uh, that will be 450 early Alzheimer pa uh, Parkinson's patients. So 450 early Parkinson's patients. And then a little later in the year, we will start another study in Parkinson's patients for advanced Parkinson's. And in the middle of the year, we plan to start the short Alzheimer's study. So we're actually starting three phase three studies this year, Parkinson's early, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's late. Earlier on, we talked about four and then, well, eight, and, oh, maybe a nine protein. I'm, I'm putting my money on 12. I don't know why. There'll be 12 You're before we're done. You're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, uh, but at any rate, they, in different relation, in different ratio to each other, one becomes Alzheimer's and another one becomes Parkinson's. Yes. Is this the same drug that we're yes. talking about? Yes. How can one drug control both? Because these toxic proteins are active in every, I mean, every disease where nerve cells die. Let me give you a totally different disease, which we did in rats. I figured if it works in the brain, Alzheimer's, if it works in the body, Parkinson's, how about the eye? Now, if you induce glaucoma, if a person has glaucoma, it's high, high pressure in the eye, the retina dies, eventually the eye goes blind. In a rat, you can accelerate that because you increase the pressure, the poor rat has no choice. The pressure goes up, the retina dies, and the rat goes blind, okay? We treated that rat without, well, we treated a different rat with our drug. 
and the pressure goes up. Obviously, we didn't make go up. The retina does not die, and the eye does not go blind. So what our drug do, does by inhibiting these proteins and inhibits them all because nature made them similar enough that they actually have one region that is 100% identical. And that was not known. Well, this was really something we found out because we couldn't figure out how does this drug do that. But there is one region in the mRNA, and you know now what mRNA is because of COVID, in that mRNA, there is one region in all these proteins that is identical. And that is what our drug interacts with. So in that case, what we're talking about is that it puts the limits on all of these proteins. So if one is really surging ahead or two, or, it doesn't matter. It keeps the limits down, keeps it in place. And exactly. therefore, you don't end up with the imbalance. So while we're looking, chasing after different diseases, it may be we can roll back and say, no, this is the problem back here, where in fact, the, one or another is getting way out of whack. So, exactly. Out of, whack, see, out of whack is a, is a scientific word, I believe. Yeah. It, it, it's 100% scientific because it means that it's not in balance. Absolutely. See, and that's why we had such a hard time, because for seven years, I knew it was doing it. I didn't know how. And how can it do all these things if you don't know how it does them? But it does them. Yes, but how? And we finally figured it out. The fact that these mRNAs have an identical region, and that region is responsible for how they are made. And our drug interacts with that region, really lets us regulate them all. Now, let's take a minute to talk about another study in, in a slightly different vein. Um, uh, it's on traumatic brain injury. What are you doing there? Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is, see, sometimes I think I fell on a gold mine. But if you don't look at the gold mine, because who cares? It's just money. I fell on a principle of how nerve cells die. Guess what happens if you hit your head? All these little soldiers, these sticky things say, oh, we got, we got attacked, we got attacked. They come out and they do the exact same thing as in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. They start, they inhibit axonal transport, they inhibit how the nerve cell works, they increase inflammation and they kill nerve cells. They just do it very fast in traumatic brain injury, and they do it very slowly in Alzheimer's. But it's really the same thing. Whenever you injure the brain, and it could be through lead, it could be through a chronic long disease like Alzheimer's. It's just aging of the brain that keeps going forever. Or it could be that you get hit over the head. They, they do the exact same thing. They say the brain is attacked. We have to defend it. And if it's attacked very heavily, then they come out in drones and then they stick and become toxic. And that's why concussions doesn't lead to chronic traumatic encephalopathy right away. As you know, in football players, it takes 20, 30, 40 years and 100 concussions before they become demented in their 60s or, or, or 70s. Because a concussion is not a very severe injury. So you need a lot of little injuries that build up before these soldiers are way too many. Because each injury just causes a little and everything gets back to normal. Whereas if somebody has a really bad concussion, 
very often there are lasting uh, lasting problems. And so with traumatic brain injury, as you say, sometimes it's very, very fast, given a severe one. Uh, what are you What are you trying to do in this study? How How are you approaching it? We have really not done too much in humans. We stuck to rats because you can control it. All the rats are the same. Take people in car accidents. One hits their head on the right side, one on the left side, one in the back, one in the front. It's really hard to standardize. And I'm a little scared, and one of these days I won't be scared, but I'm a little scared of taking on something where the probability of failure is so high. See, if it works in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's where I feel that we can kind of control it, I know they're terrible diseases and I know they're hard to, but you have a population that is not that inhomogeneous, okay? But once it works in those, then I probably will have the courage to take people that come from all sorts of life that had had their injury 10 years ago and just try to put them into groups that are reasonably similar. Because in concussion, there are no two groups that are similar. Reasonably similar and then see if our drug works. Is this drug one that you have to take every day? Is it an injection? Is it a pill? How do you take this drug? One pill every morning. You can take it every evening. I don't think it makes any difference. But in our protocol, we say in the mornings that it's out of the way. So you would anticipate if you had one of the standard neurodegenerative diseases that you would get on this and you would stay on this. Yes. I, I, I mean, one of the studies we'd like to do, and again, it's mice, is take them off and see how long that the the drug reaction is there. We know from Parkinson's mice that two months after taking them off the drug, their movement is still normal. Three months, it's not. So, you know, you could envision that you come off and you go back on. At this point, it's just easier to say once a day. Well, this is so exciting, Maria. I, I hope you'll come back and see us again. Once we have a drug that works in humans, for sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Now, remember that. Remember that. All the journalists will be clamoring. Remember my name. Oh, I will (laughs) never forget your name. Moira is such a (laughs) lovely name. I will never forget it. (laughs) Well, good. I hope that's the case (laughs) on all points, on all points. Thanks again. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Dr. Maria Macchichini is the founder, president, and CEO of Anovis Bio. More information is available on the web at anovisbio.com. That's Anovis, A-N-N-O-V-I-S, anovisbio.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.